Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of Another Architecture Podcast, recorded for the Open House London Digital Festival. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. And for those of you that don't know the podcast, it is for anyone who is interested in going behind the scenes of designing a house. Each episode, I talk to a different architect from around the world about how they have created an inspirational place to live. And a special thank you to L Decoration, who recently featured us as one of the eight best architecture and design podcasts to listen to. In this bonus episode, the tables are turned and I get to experience being a guest on my own show. Shock horror. This is probably like a band saying their next number will be from their new album. But my business partner does an excellent job and Ewald van der Straten takes the reins and interviews me about one of our latest projects, Two and a Half Story House. For people that don't know Open House, it is an annual event where hundreds of owners open up their private architect design properties to the public. What I love about the event is you get to be extremely nosy and you can get loads of inspiration for your home. But due to the current situation, the majority of the event has gone digital. And I thought what better way to share one of the houses that we would have loved to open for tours this year. In the interview, Ewald finds out all about the design process and about the challenges that we faced to add an extra bedroom to this house by only adding a half-height roof extension. Hopefully, in the interview, we can satisfy your curiosity and replicate the satisfaction of nosying around someone else's house. You can find out more about the work of Bradley van der Straten at b-vds.co.uk and more about the project on the podcast Instagram. You can also find out more about this year's Open House event at open-city.org.uk. I hope you enjoy listening to the episode. So uh, for this Open House special, I wanted to thank you, George, for letting me take over the podcast for this episode. Uh, how does that feel when the tables are turned on you, George, for once? <laughs> uh, <laughs> difficult, but um, well, no, first of all, it's your idea to actually do the takeover, so thanks for that, but um, well, I think it's a great idea. Um, but yeah, you're, it feels like letting go of your thing. Yes. It's, it's bizarre, but it's also probably an essential experience to learn what it's like to be a guest. Yes, exactly. See how you are being put on the spot once in a while and how your interviewees are feeling in the past. In the past. Uh, hopefully I will be put on the spot. Yes, please. Great. Uh, great. Well, wait and see then. Hopefully you keep listening. <laughs> so um, I have to admit from my end, George, that this is my first time that I'm hosting a podcast or if being on a podcast altogether. So um, I will try to live up to your experience and see how we get on. So today we're covering uh, a project of our own studio, George, um, our studio Bradley von der Straten Architects, and the project is called Two and a Half Story House. Before um, jumping in too far, do you just want to explain where the name comes from itself? Because it is quite peculiar or quite particular. Yeah, it's, um, well, I think it's one of my sort of favorite names if we like giving names to our projects, don't yeah. we? And, um, but it does totally describe it. It's quite a unique project in that we added a half story extension on top of a two-story house yes um so that's where the name comes from it's this idea of um i think i've I've described it once before of it being a bit like that film being john malkovich where there's the half floor the secret half floor that you get in the elevator yeah and yeah it's a house that's got a normal pretty sort of standard looking box extension on the roof a dormer extension um but it's not normal because it's it's only half a story and i'm I'm sure there's people that walk past and and think what on earth is going on in that (laughs) house why have they built such a small extension on their roof but i'm sure we'll we'll come to that i think now you're talking from the perspective of an an architect who actually points these things out and is aware of these things most people would walk straight past i think but i've got this in my head if i hear two and a half story as a half story extension like is that top floor like a squashed floor or something like that (laughs) (laughs) so to avoid that squashed floor um this is what this podcast is about uh hopefully going through how it works and how we made it work um so it's it's quite an interesting property itself it's not necessarily a typical london terrace as such and i also obviously we know you also live on that estate do you want to talk through how, how what the estate is like what the property is like Having living in one of those typologies yourself, or is this one specific or unique to that uh, state? 
Um, well, I've, I've lived in this area for a long time, as you obviously know. Yeah. Um, and this estate was one of those kind of places you kind of walked past. Well, I walked past and never really sort of gave it much notice. It was a kind of cut through. Um, and But then an opportunity kind of came up to buy a place on this estate. And it was um, a former client of ours. They were renting. We were doing work on their house and they were renting mm. a house that's just like the one I live in now. And um, and they notified me and said, look, one's come on the market. I think you'd like it. You liked it when you came around. And uh, it kind of all unraveled from there. But it's it's a lovely estate designed in the 80s to the sort of the, the Parker Morris standards. So the um, the standards that were used for, for council housing in, in those days. So they're very well designed, consider storage, very well proportioned. Um, and where we live, they're, they're typical kind of, I describe them as shoebox houses. It's not a very kind of complimentary sort of sounding description, mm. but they're they're long and thin. They're long and quite narrow yeah. house layouts and they're two floors. Um, and because of that, there's a big sloping roof, a mono pitch roof on the top. And a lot of people extend and put a dormer on the top that extends the whole length of that. But yeah, this house is the, for two and a half story houses. They're the, the only two properties in the entire estate that are different. So they're, they're shorter and wider. Um, and they're not as higher either, uh, just because we couldn't put the full dormer on there either. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like a wedge of a triangular wedge of cheeses that, you know, the, the roof on the top and yes. on my house, it's, ex, it's extremely long. And the longer that sort of wedge and that angle goes up, the higher the pitch of the roof goes. And on a typical house in this estate, somebody can stand up at the far end of the loft yeah. and therefore you can put in a roof extension. I think their house is probably half the length of a typical house. So therefore the roof is only, half only goes up half the height. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this being a uh, open house special, there is a link with open house uh, to do with the clients. Um, I mean, do you want to talk through the story about how, how the clients found us in the first place or how they got to know our studio? Uh, yes. For- well, I actually learned very recently. So they're, they're neighbors and they're, and they're friends now as well. Um, that actually this story of them finding us through open house is actually not correct. Um, oh, yeah, I didn't. I've I got I, these I, facts I, wrong, Dan. Apologize. Well, no, because I, I, it's been me going around telling everybody like, oh, how did they find us? They visited our house, the studio that me and you built. So our very yeah. first project, um, we built it ourselves. We, we opened it for open house for about two years in a row, I think. And I'd always had the understanding that they'd been round to see it. And that was their link. And eight years later, they got in contact. Yes. And it was complete coincidence that I happened to live 50 meters away. I literally bumped into them the other day and it turns out that they didn't actually visit it. They just knew of it because friends had visited it. And uh, so, there's still a small link there then. So there is, there is a, it's definitely, it was an open house project as far as yes. we're concerned. Yes. <laughs> there, there's like the fraction of a link or half a link with open house. Um, yeah. But yeah. Okay, it's, it's quite nice as well. Like eight years, you know, to think that, somebody's remembering something like that that far yes. you know you do these things years ago and you think oh, you know things have moved on but um it, it was very nice touching yes. they kind of I, I, I agree it's it's very nice to hear some of the feedback you get you've done something last year like some of the, our instagram live sessions for example mm. and then a year later or half or like half a year a few months later oh you watched that one episode and that stuck with us like, oh you're kind yeah. of not aware of these things aren't you from these things that you've done in the past but they do have an impact clearly it, it must be the equivalent of like people used to keep scrapbooks but now everything's digital so i suppose in some sense these things yeah. are getting logged somehow and uh yeah our digital footprint is yeah. spread across the web for many years to come. So talking a bit about the um, the brief itself, I mean, I'm aware that it was it was quite pragmatic and there was a very practical question to be answered there. What was that uh, starting point in terms of a brief? So they've got this house on the estate, not like the other houses, um, mm-hmm. but still two bedrooms. So living spaces on the ground floor, two bedrooms on the first floor and one bathroom. And like a lot of our clients, they had a, a growing family. So they had one child, perfect, perfect setup for a one child family with garden space as well in central London. Yeah. Um, but then they had another child on the way and they wanted an extra bedroom. And I think their, their starting point was probably looking around and seeing what they could buy to get that extra bedroom and realizing the, the cost uh, in London of that kind of uplift and 
and, and moving. And I suppose that's a, a lot of what the, the Don't Move Improve movement is about that um, you know, happens in London and the awards that they give for it. Um, and so then they started investigating and speaking to us about adding this extra room. But the process was, it was quite a long one to start with and quite a challenging one of trying various things to emulate what other people had done on their houses and trying to get them through um, through with planning um, and and failing a couple of times. We, you know, we just couldn't get something through. They were being really strict about what we were allowed to do with the house. Yeah, that's because we thought at the start we could add something similar, Dormer, to the volume, but we would exceed the actual allowed guidance, um, which is why we had to go back to the drawing board twice. Um, there was like a particular moment I want to ask you about around that time when we kind of resubmitted and we get this question asked quite often of how do you as a designer or us as designers um, come to the point of understanding or getting to the idea of unlocking this project? How how did that come about for, for, for you? I think it was you who, who had this eureka moment or this aha moment. Um, I'm not sure that's the right saying in English, eureka, but... Uh, yeah, it is, it is. It is, got you. Um, still learning, clearly. Can you describe that? I know it's hard to put that into words, maybe. That word of that thought of, yes, that's that's it. That unlocked unlocks the whole planning problem and the whole layout problem. Well, I have to give credit to the client here, really, on this one. Um, yeah. Because it was quite a unique one in the sense that we tried, we'd failed. We brought in a planning consultant, yeah. failed again. Um, and there were... There were there were maybe a couple of other options on the table that were just sort of non non starters really, but it was clear nothing was going to happen from a planning perspective, and for all intents and purposes the project had gone dead, um, and I think the clients resumed their search, uh, had got a bit sort of fed up with that system and resumed their search for another house, mm-hmm. and it was months later that one of them just got in contact and said, look, what I think. Very early on, I'd suggested, look, we could do something where it fully fits in with permitted guidance, so where you don't need to get planning permission, yeah. and we just stay below that roof line. But at the time, it just seemed like a bit of a ridiculous idea. If you tell somebody, let's put a half floor on top of your house, you know, what's, what do you expect the reaction is going to be? But clearly, after more attempts and realizing sort of the cost of this additional bedroom by moving, um, the client yeah. kind of came out and said, look, what if we did this? And I've had a little thing and he had a bit of scrap of paper and he'd done a bit of kind of loose sort of measurements of maybe we could do this. What do you reckon? And then there was a kind of eureka point of very different to most other projects we do. This one was a design based around this kind of let's give this a go and kind of hammered out in a matter of hours in in one sitting, I seem to remember. Yeah. And there's still, like, when we look back now, and you can put them on the website stuff, but it's still the drawings that were done in that kind of hammering out session. Yeah. It's st- it pretty much exactly as it got built. And But I do remember thinking, like, they might, they probably won't go for this. Um, yeah. It, you know, requiring a massive leap of faith, a design like this, I think. I think that answers partially the question I was going to ask you next was, uh, there was a strong collaboration between the clients and and it wasn't necessarily all led by us. It was a bit of a combination no. of ideas and a combination of um, working together creatively. Um, so by the sound of it, the motivation to do something different kept on growing over time, realizing what, what you can or can't do in London. Uh, so walking through that space itself, when you get up there, it doesn't feel at all like half a story or it doesn't feel at all like a compromise when you're in there. Uh, it feels very light and, and spacious, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a tiny footprint we've added up there, but it just doesn't feel like that. Why, why is that? Um, I mean, it, in some respects, it's actually a loss of footprint as well. Yeah. Um, it was kind of thinking smarter about three bedroom spaces that are a bit more compact than two larger bedrooms. But why is the, why does it not feel small? Yes. I think is the key is comes down to the, the interlock of the design. So what we've yeah. described a lot as this interlock. And it was it goes back to kind of principles of 
things that me and you explored on the very first project we did. So when we did the studio, mm-hmm. very small space. I can see why people with small spaces then came to us because we did that <laughs> project and and we're probably forever more trying to move away from small spaces, but we did it very well in that first project. And yeah. um and what we did there was we created we could have filled in three floors of accommodation and with very low ceilings and got maximum footprint and maximum bedroom space but we didn't we left part of the lounge as a two-story double height ceiling space yes and it's a common theme some i'm talking to john elway on this podcast on a previous episode of terrarium house the same thing it's a bold move sometimes to make but it makes the whole house breathe and feel a lot better and we did that here in the stair space and actually gave over space to let light come in and flood down into all floors of the the house Mm -hmm. rather than rather than maxing out but equally there wasn't really much of an opportunity to max out here this is a compact this is a millimeter design and you know sometimes we'll say that and might you know might be bending the truth or whatever but it was literally a millimeter design there was no room for there were very clear limits to work with yes but yeah i definitely think it's that being generous with the circulation spaces so picking one bit and being slightly over generous with it has made it feel airy and spacious. Talking about that interlock you mentioned, how does the interlock work? Uh, how do I envisage this? I mean, it's maybe hard to explain in words, George, but yeah. do you want to give do you want to give that a go? <laughs> um, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Of I was remembering. Sorry, I'm going to jump really far back here, but okay. I was remembering the first when I grew up. I had <laughs> when this I idea. Grew, <laughs> when I was playing with my Lego, exactly. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the very first or one of the very early assignments at university first studying was building models of other great architects work. And I remember yes. teaming oh, up. Oh, I think with, I know what you're going to say. Is this the Corbusier one that you're going to bring up? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Unité d'habitation. Yes. So the Unité d'habitation, there were a few of them built and the idea of this apartment block on stilts in the sky. Yes. Um, but the key idea of this circulation going through the heart of the building and two apartments with double height spaces interlocking yeah. around this. and Like an L shape, basically, on top of the circulation. Yeah, I think one way of kind of explaining it to a listener would be when you do that picture framing thing with your thumb and forefinger and you're creating a frame and you're creating a triangle with them to look. So whoever is listening now, George, they're going to do these weird uh, hopefully. gestures in front of we're, people. We're both, do, we're both doing it now on screen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but that's, that's the interlock, isn't it? So the thumb is the double height space and the index finger is the single story. Yes. And in the Unité d'Habitation, we built this slice-through model that showed these two apartments interlocking, like yeah. thumb and finger over. Um and I suppose that's how you describe it. But here it's on a much smaller scale because it's it's not two stories for the thumb. The thumb is one and a half stories. Yeah. So there's two bedrooms, one a bedroom on the first floor and a new bedroom, which we call the mezzanine bedroom. And both of those rooms have one part of them, approximately one half of them is full story that you can use. Um, and the other part of them is half story. And in the mezzanine room, the half story becomes a bed platform. So a good yeah. space to not have full height because you don't need it. And in the other room, in the lower floor, that thumb half height area has been used for storage. Yes. Which, again, is probably your question of asking, how does it feel bigger? Storage is essential, isn't it? And we've used some, what you could regard as unusable spaces have been used for storage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because it is a millimeter design, like you said, we have to exploit every corner that you get, mm. uh, whether it's for something practical or whether it's to create a long, longer view in the house to make it breathe, like you said. Um, so if I understand this correctly, explain it to the, to the listener, I am in the first floor bedroom. If I knock on the ceiling, that is pretty much knocking on the underside or the mattress, in theory, of the bed. Pretty much, yes. Yes. <laughs> to explain it and trying to explain it in simple terms. Um, there's also uh, an interesting use of internal glazing there, which is not very common in, in a loft, but it transforms the, the, the feeling when you get up there. Was that a, requ- a practical requirement because the kids were, it was a kid's bedroom? Did they need to have some sort of uh, an ability to check or to see the kids play? Or was that something that we came up with by, oh, you could do this and bring in light both sides and views diagonally or... I think the idea, so that the thing that you mentioned there about seeing their child sort of playing the room from the first floor is a thing that 
is a nice kind of byproduct of the design yeah. and it's a nice kind of extra but the actual idea of putting that glass there so it's the bedroom that's you're on the top floor and there's a floor to ceiling window where you look down and into the double height stair space yeah and that allows light to to come through that says the roof light above the stair space bringing light in and it just allows way more light to come in but you get this really nice quirk that actually when you're on the first floor landing and it's interesting to sort of I, I ask the clients what's it like when people first visit how do they respond to this sort of stuff and one of the really interesting things is people can't figure it out at first they get to the first floor landing they walk yeah. upstairs and then they find at their sort of chin level there's a floor of a bedroom and they're looking into their their head is at the floor level of this bedroom and they're looking in and can see these these child this child's toys and things like that and um and that's where these sort of one and a half elements collide and and I really love that element that there's that glass window uh, yeah. space that you just don't expect it but it's definitely to make the space feel bigger and to 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 share the love and spread the light around the house <laughs> borrow, borrow it between the spaces yes be- i suppose what you're trying to say is when because of that window being there you experience it as one and a half stories if mm. that was a blocked up wall you wouldn't necessarily be able to bring the 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 two floors together you wouldn't yeah. see the workings of the one and a half story up there up there um I have to ask you, George, and you've mentioned it before about the studio, but why plywood? We have we've used it. We've used it so much in our work, and I think I've mentioned this to you this week, um, just in passing another project of ours. It is is a recurring theme. Not that we try we try to use that all the time, but why particularly on this one? Because there's so much of it here. Um, was that because the clients were a fan of the studio project and they loved the coherence of everything in Bly there or was it a practical choice or practical reason for it or both well it was from the client's perspective it was they just loved the studio project and for people that don't know the studio project that we built the the entire interior is is plywood yeah um and we know the reasons why we chose it for that project is it's a very pra- it's it's a beautiful material but it's a very practical material as in it's, you can work with it you can make adjustments and mistakes like it's timber it's not glass and steel where it's yeah um, but they just fell in love with this that look that we'd created there and you know we've created a rod for our own back essentially if that's you know people then come to us and that's that's what they want and that's so it was there wasn't even with this project, there was a very clear kind of flow. There wasn't even really a process of discussion. The, the, the briefing was, that's what we want you to do. Yeah. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. It was um, an instruction rather than yeah. an idea that we propose and uh, do them then. But you're, you know, you were saying that talking about, you know, we're talking about it this week. And I mean, one of the projects you're probably referencing is the work I've just done at my house where I've used plywood, not to this extent I've kind of used yeah. it kind of carefully but uh, it's also um, a project in 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 your area another one as well yes of course frame yeah. the window frame. but you know there if, you know talking from personal experience i've used it on my own house because it's it's affordable as in you know i could have white painted plasterboard walls everywhere but in yeah. terms of wanting some warmth and texture and the natural material it's much much cheaper than than um than using oak or using you know veneers or anything like that. yeah yeah um so it's it's that element as well. It's and it's a beautiful it is a beautiful material. It gives you know, used in the right way and finished in the right way. Yes. Um you get all these lovely natural grains that are I'm living with it now in living spaces and it's really relaxing. Yes. I couldn't agree more. Plywood is actually such a, a, a versatile material. You can make all sorts of things with it. Cladding, flooring, stairs, furniture, kitchen carcasses, you name it, it's strong enough mm. for all of it. And it's cost effective uh, and it's got a very beautiful particular aesthetic. So, mm. um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all on board on that, but I, I wasn't aware that this was an instruction right at the start. Um, but it makes I think, sense. I think that was a partly an enjoyable part of designing this project. If there was some, you know, often we'll try and when we're designing, you want to try and create parameters because parameters help kind of creativity. And if yeah. somebody just gives you a blank canvas, it's actually difficult. You end up, creating some parameters for yourself right yeah, yeah yeah here there were clear parameters there was there was the struggle against planning and having to abide by certain rules and work within them um but there was also the the desire from the clients for plywood which meant all the focus just went directly into 
um, this spatial solution of of how to make it feel, how to make it function, how to yeah. get storage in, and yeah, how yeah. to get that third bedroom in. Yes. So there's also also experience with working with plywood. We know how to detail with that. Um, was there anything new that you kind of came up with or that we came up with in terms of how to uh, detail a junction of two boards meeting or to a wall or a ceiling meeting or anything like that from your end? Well, I tell you, uh, one thing is it's it's very satisfying to work on something that we've sort of developed and done ourselves by building it yeah. on another project to then have somebody far more skilled and equipped doing it yes. um, means you can achieve so much more and like i think what we achieved was was amazing with the sort of tools that we had and things but we At can't time, compete yeah. with people um so for me what i was sort of amazed by of going around and looking at the house is just the level of craftsmanship and sometimes you can worry of you know somebody can't compete with your own personal love and care like we would have put into our first project and getting every sort of angle perfect but here the builder got it and was on board with it and the yeah. client, the client actually did a lot of project managing with that builder and in ensuring that they kind of towed the line and didn't ignore certain key design things. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that amazed me is just that that they followed it to the letter what we designed, mm -hmm. and and it, and executed it with extreme craft. I mean, one thing we did learn was there's there's one um, junction that where the plywood is on a 45 degree mitre joint on one corner. Yes. We, we, we used some of those in, in the studio project and there were, I was the one that, I mean, you want to use the right vocabulary here, but they were quite tricky to, to, <laughs> to execute without swearing on, on the, on the podcast here. But well, I think that here was the reminder of asking a builder to do that. Yeah. I think we had a few details where it had it and basically that was that's the one thing when i spoke to the clients was if, if you ask the clients what's what was the compromise here there's very little compromise on the initial design here apart from that one thing of mitre joints of plywood and so there's one place where the builder's done it and put a hell of a lot of work in it and is extremely proud of it yeah and it's actually on the main corner when you're coming up the stairs so he yes. chose a great place to do it but after he did it once, he was like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> but so I he think, was happy that we kind of moved away from the mitre everywhere Yeah, else. And, a and actually, in hindsight, you did the, one of the beauties of plywood is you see that end grain yeah. when you're kind of joining two panels. That's, that's one of the things we definitely, me and you, I know for sure, definitely love about that material. Yeah. Because um, you're seeing how the material is made as well. It's this series of, it's like pastry, isn't it? Loads and loads of thin layers yes. um, <laughs> that you just don't want to bite into it. Bring it back to food again. Everything goes back everything. to food. <laughs> everything mean... in our office does come back to food somehow, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that pink concrete looks yum, for example, is one of them. Um, the, the end result is, is actually uh, something that was recognized on a national level, actually. We are we can now share the second day that we can share that this project is now uh, shortlisted or the finalist for the um, national um, wood awards this year. Mm. And uh, I, I think that's down to the collaboration of the client, the builder and, and us as designers, I, I, I think. How does that feel that, let's say we, we, we could win this. How does it feel that the studio 500 meters away, one, having won one wood award, 10 years ago we could replicate that same thing again this year who, who doesn't want to dominate an award um <laughs> i'm joking in, within the same area 500 <laughs> meters of each other so stoke newton is suddenly the um, wood award central well I'd was say, that well, the aim actually was that the aim to win awards or was that the aim to have very high design ambition or did that just come through the process no i have to say if i'm being really honest i have to say i had certain sort of doubts of this project of the design was there and yeah. we did we did what we'd normally do with a full set of sort of technical drawings and all the research and materials and everything like that but actually very differently from most of our projects this one was then handed over to the client the client already knew the builder that they wanted to do it and the the client wanted to manage it themselves yeah and and we hear that quite a lot of oh we had this builder do our bathroom and we think they'd be good for the job and usually when it comes to it we we kind of have our doubts, but the builder usually pulls out of it themselves because they they see the sort of 
the project and realize okay it's very different from doing a bathroom and yeah. i was sort of thinking here like okay again like you're asking about the podcast it's handing over a baby we've done the designs but the client's going to manage it themselves and um and thinking you know this is a complex this is a complex design we yeah. detailed the hell out of it yeah, but yeah. it's still a complex design is going to need focus so to see it with this kind of result was it definitely exceeded my expectations mm -hmm. and um and i don't think the client would take offense from that you know we're professionals and naturally if you've been doing something all that time you're going to have that slight reservation yeah um but then seeing it and then for it to get recognized by the wood awards um which i think the wood awards in the in the uk um i think that they're, they're one of my favorite ones because they put you don't pay anything. There's no, there's nothing to enter it or anything like that. And mm, it's, it's and not it's, a money making machine kind of thing. No. And they, it's, it's, I think it's one of the oldest architecture awards in the country, in the UK as well. Yeah. Um, and, but they also, they send judges around to have a look. And were you there when they came around for the studio? Was that just me? That was just you, actually. I would love oh to my be God. there. It's the second time I couldn't be here this time either. That was so intimidating of four, <laughs> four experts in Making architecture, notes. in timber, etc. And we built it ourselves. And they're walking around. And I thought, they're tearing this apart because they were asking really specific questions. But for me, something like that is really important. In an age where things are so sort of Instagram heavy and based on the digital image. And to have something around. And fast turnaround to be judged then on the actual craftsmanship and have the availability for an award to send the people round. Yeah. But terrifying experience. But so we've done the same here and they've been round and whether we win or not, they were definitely impressed with the, the craftsmanship and the effort that went in. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's. How was really it different this time down round? Because you, you uh, took them round once again, that two and a half story house with the jury members was it a similar experience or were you more confident or well it was fine because if, if they picked any sort of flaw in the craftsmanship i could at least go ah yeah yeah the builder yeah <laughs> i knew you were gonna say that <laughs> <laughs> it was it kind of makes it slightly less personal but um i mean there was yeah, an interesting story you... yeah with the actual the builder doing it so one of the first setbacks of this project is um it was a polish building team and they had the joiner um who is going to obviously the joiner for this project is the key part of the team because there's so much timber yes um and it's like he, a piece of furniture almost isn't it yeah exactly yeah it is it's a piece of furniture and he he had i think he had an injury he dislocated his shoulder it was something sort of I terrible remember that. yes yeah, yeah. Or, or he broke his back or something you know a terrible thing for to happen to a builder and it's your livelihood but obviously for the project it's you know what's going to happen here because that's the key person and very short notice the builder brought somebody over from poland who eventually did all the joiner in the carpentry here and you know mm. so a substitute basically came on off the bench and did this it's incredible <laughs> a good substitute by the sound of it gareth bale doing the last uh, 10, 10 minutes of the second half to score a goal <laughs> On, on the uh, the clients managing the build, um, what, how, what was our involvement during construction then? If it wasn't kind of us following up regularly, or well, you you definitely agree with me here. But when it's when you've designed a project, you want to be there when it's in construction. It sounds like kind of control freak, but you want to be there because you can see something. If something's about to happen a mistake as a mistake, yeah. you can at least pick it up you can address it and prevent it, it from happening yeah and prevent it from happening and the fear is is that you're going to get sort of contact if you're not there you just get contact and you hear about things after they've happened and you're and fixing something and you can't fully sort of resolve problem. it yeah and so the relationship generally here was they were quite you know there were phone calls sort of through the build of oh this you know this product's now not not available anymore or the builder says they don't want to use this or they don't want to do that so there's an element of sort of some problem solving um but actually generally it was quite quite hands-off really yeah. apart apart from that yeah, yeah which is why it was such a surprise to see yeah it. yeah yeah. Oh, hats off to the client and the, the the contractor executing it to the letter um but i suppose did we go overboard or did we do more before handover knowing that it was going to be handed over to the contractor in terms of our drawings or was this standard to detail the hell out of it like you said no i think it was being honest, I think the set of drawings is what we'd produce for a project, yeah. even if we're managing it. Because, you know, our mantra is 
get it all right before it starts on site. And um, and people can price from it accurately as well. It, yeah, cause there's always going to be there's always going to be drama. There's always going to be effort. There's always going to be problem solving on site. So mm-hmm. any of the stuff that can be eliminated beforehand that's not necessary that can be solved right now. Yeah, you do it before you get started on site. Um, so no, it was it was a typical set that we would produce. Um, but it, yes, it was detailed the hell out of it. <laughs> yes. Um, bring it to the bigger picture again a bit. Um, do Can other people replicate this kind of half-story design somewhere else on their own house, for example? Um, that is a very good question because... I know it's not I, an easy one to answer. Well, actually, I got an inquiry through... Um, an email came through to me directly, actually, the other last week. I don't think I told you about it. Um, yeah. And it was, but it was just somebody that was, again, you mentioned before, actually, at the beginning, he'd been watching these Instagram live sessions we've been doing. Yes. And he's a TV producer in, I think he does like home TV shows and stuff or whatever. But he was buying a house that's kind of similar, like a ex-local authority, yeah. 1970s style house, and said, I love what you've done with Two and a Half Story House. Can we do it on this one? Mm-hmm. And I was like, "I'll oh, just just send me through the plans, and I'll have a quick, a quick, quick glance at them." And he couldn't really because it's such a unique solution to such a specific plan on this building that works. On his house, he had so here the stairs are at the front of the house in two and a half story, and two mm-hmm. bedrooms at the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can come in at one end where the stairs go up in one end of this box dormer and access this half story space. But his house was a slightly different layout. The stairs were in the middle and it was a double pitched roof. So more of a sort of typical, what you'd expect of a terrace yeah. house. Um, but he had the same issue. It was only a half height roof and that's why he wanted this issue. But just a quick glance at it and you kind of knew straight away it wasn't possible because you'd lose the challenge was this with this project of you don't want to lose so much space on the first floor that, the design solution for the mezzanine is kind of fruitless. Yeah. And we found the right balance here of does it, you of, of making it usable by having the bed platform and stuff, but it just couldn't work on a different layout. So I think this solution here, it, it would still be, it's not a plug and play. Um, yeah. The next door neighbor could do this because that's the other unique house yes. on the estate. We can't make um, a trademark out of that so, um, just yet. So the next door neighbor could do it if they're listening, but, um, <laughs> but no, other than that, I think, um, it would be, I, th- I think there's lessons to be learned that you can, it's the, the key thing is the bed platform and you could use a bed platform to create headspace yeah. below. That um, was going to be my next question where if it, if knowing that it's so unique then to this set of parameters that we got given, what would be the thing then that you can kind of share with the listener as a lesson learned and that anybody can apply from this project? What would it be? Ooh. Would it be that pla- pla- bed platform or would it be something else? It would be, um, I think, no matter how kind of challenging a project is and how compact a space is, I think the key lesson from that this project would teach anybody visiting it is mm-hmm. don't get too stuck down that rabbit hole of the challenge of the compactness of the space and mm-hmm. be have one area or space where no matter how difficult it might feel to be that bit more generous and that bit more bold, be bold and be a bit over generous and we were over generous with that circulation space yeah and we could have used it a bit more for storage space or for other things but actually instead it's better to just there's one area where it's it can breathe and so the area where it can breathe makes the smaller spaces more livable yes i, I uh, couldn't agree more uh, yeah <clears throat> but it takes boldness from right at the start to mm. be able to or to to say to yourself Let's focus on quality of space and that impacts everything, uh, all, all the other adjacent spaces to that uh, yeah. area um, and breathing, uh, breathing space. Well, bo- yeah, boldness from the designer, but definitely boldness from clients. Yeah, I um, think we all, we all bought into yeah. the same vision is what I'm trying to say. It's not just us. Well, that, uh, that was what was awesome with this project is when these first sort of sketches were presented to the clients. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all kinds of different ways they could have responded to it, but one could have been trepidation and Oh, I don't know. This this is this the right thing to do? This is a bit <laughs> yeah, weird. Yeah. But I remember them sat around the table just being excited. They just wanted to get on with it. Um yeah. they saw these drawings and they were like, This is gonna be amazing. Let's build it. And mm-hmm. I think that is that's the secret here of how it then got through and 
got built the way it was. Yeah. I mean, it was a solution to a problem they had for months for them. And suddenly to have that eureka moment with all of us together was mm. is a very exciting point, isn't it? Mm. Um, very different question uh, now. Um, again, a bit bigger picture. Uh, our practice, Bradley van der Stoorten Architects, is up for the prestigious Young Architect of the Year Award in two categories this year. One being the Young Architect and the other one being the Small Project Architect of the Year. And this is the last year we can win it because we've gone 10 years. This is our 10th year. This is also our 10-year anniversary. Um, so my question to you would be, if you look back on the last 10 years of our studio, what what are your three favorite projects of the of the series and, and why? Oh, man. <laughs> um, I wasn't expecting that question. Um, I know it's hard to choose, isn't it? But I thought I want to hear your thought process on that. Well, I think I think this one would have to be in there. Really? Okay. Definitely. Um because because it's there's a lot of joy in it's an actual solution, a 100% solution to a problem project yeah. and it's a different solution that I've not seen before. Mhm. <clears throat> um so so this one. Yes. And the execution uh, of it is also <clears throat> done beautifully as well, but it's subordinate to the solution yeah the solution is more is 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 the dominant element isn't it of this project it's yes. not just ply, pretty plywood on its own yes in terms of other ones um sure there must be one that comes to mind like oh i absolutely loved working on that and seeing that executed yeah there's one that um i mean it's fresh in the memory because i was talking to a journalist about it yesterday but it's a project we did called ogie house yeah um and not necessarily the most sort of dramatic of projects, but it was the one, again, I think talking about what I was mentioning earlier about this sort of Instagram and digital um, relationship with, with projects um, and the beauty of something like open house in normal non COVID times is that people go around and see these places in, in the flesh. Yeah. And what I loved about Ogie house was that it was just a beautiful space to be in, in terms of, very simple and elegant solution to a design problem, mm -hmm. a side return extension. Um, it had an element of difference that again, I hadn't seen before of the sort of low ceiling of the kitchen curving up to the glass at the side extension. Um, but the key thing was that the, the basic fundamentals of beautiful space were there for me in terms of the, the way the light fell into the space was very timeless and very beautiful. Yeah. And the space felt very calm. And that felt like something that you can't describe in words. You can't describe verbally. You can't describe in a digital image. Mm -hmm. You have to sit in there and experience it. And yeah. it was, it's the simplicity of, it's not shouty. It's not anything else. It's just a very nice space to live in. Um, yes. It is, it is, it is very serene when you're in there. Uh, and it's hard to completely put your finger on it, but it worked or works. Yes. Seeing it in the flesh. And you're right, it's very hard to, to convey that in words or yeah. to pet capture that in an image or a video. It's it's very hard. And that's the beauty of architecture. You have to experience it still, which yes. is nice still to hear that you it's not just for the pretty pictures, for the people who live in it. Yes. Um last one? Last one. Okay. These are usually ones the, the the hardest ones, the the last one of the three that don't come up to mind straight away. Yeah. Um, okay, I know what I'm going to pick. So I would have wanted to pick the, the Nordoff Robbins project that we did that's for the yeah. music therapy charity, um, which would definitely be in there. Um, and a lot of them would be in there. We're lucky with what we do to so many yes. major projects. But in terms of one that had an impact on me, when we did the, so we did the TV show, the Love Your Home and Garden show, the very first episode that we did, um, and it was the house in Eltham. Eltham. Yeah. And we had this experience of something happening very fast, but also an experience that you would never ever normally get of designing, transforming somebody's house, them not seeing it, and then just walking in through the door and sort of that TV moment. And yeah, that's so unique, isn't it? As an architect to experience like totally the, the unique. Cloud not being involved at all. And it, and it really was, you know, with the, the, their son, it was really changing that, that family's life and, and really solving 
one aspect of of you know living in that house and and day to day life and and a and a basic of her the mother being able to cook with with her son in the kitchen yeah. Yeah, where yeah. before he was in a wheelchair and she couldn't leave him unattended she couldn't she could maybe sit him in a corridor while she cooked and and you know these are sort of basic simple things that everybody should be able to sort of be able to do and have access to and i just remember coming back from that i've never been so sort of overwhelmed and emotional about something technically that was related to work yeah yeah, yeah. and it really surprised i was like what the hell has happened to me i was an emotional <laughs> wreck and it probably didn't help us fairly new sort of father as well but um i lost it i just totally yeah. lost it i was just completely overwhelmed by this whole experience probably because me and you were knackered because we'd probably been there from six in the morning i was just midnight. gonna say that it was such a um, long filming day the last yeah. sprint towards getting it finished and <clears throat> wrapping everything up with filming and the family arriving yeah. and it was all it was a roller coaster of stress pa- panic um, um working your way through like crazy yeah. to get it all done finished get out of house clean the place they yes. walk in and then you listen to little camera to watch along and how to experience it for the first time and then seeing them it was a very interesting journey that is hard we don't experience normally in yeah. kind of architectural design life of seeing that transition it's like a blind date of a house isn't it you walk in and suddenly everything is changed yes. or you don't know what to expect i can relate to that and it was a pink kitchen i mean a totally pink kitchen what can be better than that <laughs> yeah. yes um thanks for that actually so looking forward the next 10 years george um what do you want to design uh with 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 the, with the company what do you what do you what would you love to take on as a project um well i think i mean if do you want me to stick with houses i suppose because it's open house anything um, goes anything goes well i, I think okay, it's more well, interesting one thing i've always wanted to do and you'll, you'll know this is design a theater space yeah um whether that sort of hopefully that still resonates in the same way going forwards and public spaces where people gather etc but yeah the the drama of a sort of theater space the behind the scenes compared to the public space and the where the where public and story collides in the yeah. in the auditorium um and and i think you know there's a lot of sort of personal relationship with that you know i've always i did i did that project at university of designing a theater i'd love to design a theater mm-hmm. um but i mean that would equally apply to any other sort of visual space me and you've talked a lot about we visited therm vals in um, by peter zumpter in switzerland, switzerland years ago yeah. when we were traveling and a spa and how amazing it would be to design a spa because it would be somewhere like a theater that family and friends could go and experience and experience in a sort of proper way like the building would really matter yes um particularly in a spa they'd be sat there for a long time relaxing and hopefully looking at going god damn they're good designers yeah. but um <laughs> but you know something like that would be amazing but from uh, on a house i'd love to be doing something that is just completely out of comfort zone and turning something totally on its head and um like i interviewed um matthew barnett howland a few months back about cork house and just mm-hmm. what an amazing house that is and yes never having seen something like ever before something actually built from cork um something like that that could either land on our lap because of a client or be self-derived by us because we build a house for ourselves or something but that i can't even predict right now what it would be made out of and what it would be that would really excite me yes i, I would be very excited about bringing all the knowledge that we've accumulated over the years with renovations and extension and put that into into a new build um, yes it's 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 actually a bit easier to do a new build because you have a blank canvas and the parameters are not as strict technically to mm. kind of stick your teeth into that would would excite me the mo- very, very much and i'm sure you you would agree yes so on on that kind of experience of renovations because we work in a bracket of architecture, or if you can call it that, uh, where the small-scale residential projects, there is a fast turnaround of, of projects because in, in, in architecture, we turn around a project within two years. If you compare that to a tower, this might, this might take 10 years. Um, what would be um, the main thing to share to the listener as a, as a, as a piece of advice, having done and designed so many extensions and renovations? 
as a take-home piece of advice? Um, well, firstly, I love how with our profession, we describe something of a two-year process as being fast yeah. turnaround. <laughs> when we look at, I look at other friends working in other industries and they do a project that is like, you know, I don't know a graphic design project and it's turned around in a few months. And yeah. we put all this work in and have to wait for ages before yes. we can even share something with anybody. We're talking pure um, architecture while this quick, let's be honest. But yeah, compared to other industries, it's slow. Well, I think focusing on the start of the project is the key. And I think there's often, a very understandably, there's a tendency to want to jump forward, move forward, and sometimes try and save certain costs right at the beginning that I think I've, I've sometimes sort of drawn it out when I meet with certain clients or having consultations of this kind of arc of a project. And if you drew this kind of arch curve, that is the cost that you're spending as you go along in a project yeah. and you take the first third of design, the middle third of technical design and the last third of build mm -hmm. that is exponentially going up in terms of money that's going out mm -hmm. and a mistake in that final third will cost you thousands and thousands. A mistake in the first third will cost you potentially hundreds. Yes. And it's about the investment there of what is a relatively small investment at the very beginning like if you're working with a designer and that designer says look let's have another meeting and chat about this mm -hmm. or i recommend that we get this consultant in to to have a look at this and at that point it's a question of uh, that's going to be another 400 pound spend let's save the money because we can spend that on a habitat light when we're on yes. site forget about the habitat light and get the right advice right at the beginning because some things can seem superficial right at the end you know you don't you might not want to spend the money on that light but you mm -hmm. you definitely benefited in the right kind of vision right at the beginning so it's it's fundamental is that beginning yeah vision. so investing in in creating that vision and buying into it at the end of it to go in that process is, is yeah and listening to that advice there's nothing more concerning than starting a project and you're being hired as a professional to give professional advice and saying look this is going to take six months and then the build will take six months and if you know, if somebody's not buying into that and listening to that right at the beginning, there's going to be a problem. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason for that advice coming. You know, there's a reason for people going to somebody with experience of mm -hmm. doing things time and again. Um, and I would, I would always heat, get, get that advice early on. Speak, speak to people. Uh, and another one is just like, people don't know about certain things like in the UK, the RIBA, they have a find an architect service. Use mm -hmm. it. Speak, speak to a few people. A lot of architects have said that on the podcast and have said, you know, we'll always, I think it was Wawawa that were the very Correct. first interview. And they said, you know, we'll speak to somebody. If they haven't spoken to anybody else, we will actively say, you have to go and speak to at least two other architects because we want you to be making the choice to work with us. Yes. Not trying to catch you out and Haha, we've, we've won it. They want it to, they want to know it's the right choice. Yeah. It's a, it's a very a, a personal journey as well. Like two years yeah. is a long time to work with somebody to feel to fe be able to communicate with each other well is important and you have to mm. be on the same wavelength so by going to other people you you kind of gauge that in a healthy way and then you can make your choice very informed or better mm. informed i'm going to end this with uh, the set of three questions that you ask everybody george and now this is coming your way uh, <laughs> i hope you're prepared for these because these are probably the questions that you knew about already um so what is the one thing that really annoys you in your home, George? I know you've just done your own hot place up. So it's what annoyed you maybe then in that case, or is there already something that you are getting annoyed by, by with the new renovation? No, like, yeah. So as you said, I've just very recently done work that we've been planning to do for a while. Yeah. Um, and I could not possibly say that there's something that's annoying <laughs> with it because me and, uh, and the family, we're just so excited to be living in something that we've designed and yes and, and really lucky to have that as well so absolutely not but in terms of yes there is one thing and it's um we can't extend the house so i'd say that was the thing that i'd pick that would annoy me because we live in a property that's a leasehold rather than a freehold yeah um and for people listening outside the uk uh i'm not going to explain what that is it's just something that's very ridiculous it's a legal um, thing isn't it you technically don't own your building you're kind of it's a lease for 100 years or whatever you rent it and for 100 years <laughs> And as an architect, you know, you always want this idea of there's a project on, there's potential, could do this, could do that. We love potential, right? Yeah. And um, when you know that that limitation is there, that I'd, I'd pick, I'd pick that. Yes, no, I can, I can understand that. It's because we have the experience and the skills to 
extend it and make a big impact not being able to do that on your own house yes must be quite frustrating i can see that well no it's not frustrating in perspective it's definitely not frustrating but if i had to pick something yeah yeah, yeah. that's what i'd pick got you um could you describe a home that you lived in or visited that made you feel happy or um really excited to be there and what what why was that making Um, you feel that way yeah, if I picked a home, well, if I picked places that have inspired me, mm. um, can, am I? I know these are my question. Am I allowed to have two? <laughs> you, you no, no, I'm going to force you to pick one. <laughs> okay. Well, I can't. I can't pick the camper van then that me and you travelled in. Um, well, that is a home. That is. That doesn't mean it's a house. A home is different. But I to a can house. only have one, so yeah, that's yeah. my way of getting the second one in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say my tent. Got you. Because everything, there's, I think there's a lot of things with home that we design for certain comforts and a lot of things that actually, when you boil it down, there's some things we don't need. They're luxuries. And we definitely learned that traveling in a camper van. Yeah. And it definitely inspired the way we've designed a lot of places. But there's also this thing of wanting to be kind of connected to nature and wanting to sort of go back to certain basics. And the elements, the basic elements are there with a tent. And I've just never been happier than being in that with my family. And you just, you're there, you can hear creatures in the night, you can hear the breeze and you open up and you're exposed to light immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a thing I loved about the terrarium house projects that I did on one of the previous interviews of this, this whole focus on kind of nature and light and sort of feeling at one with it. The and, connection with the elements again. Yeah. Yeah. And um, God, that it become important for everybody in sort of lockdown and, and, that you know that kind of thing if if it brought it even more to the fore but when you think about it with a tent it's so simple it's so basic but so so happy in it yeah you know cooking on a fire and and, and that kind of stuff is that is that one one of those things you want to design in the next 10 years then a tent structure no but i think if i'm <laughs> designing houses for the, if i was to design houses for the rest of my life they'd probably always be trying to get close to the feelings that you experience yes. in a tent yeah, those principles are there. The basic already. principles, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll let you answer that yourself. If you could choose any designer to design your new home, who would you choose? You know the answer already. I, I, think, I, I think I do, but maybe you okay. can surprise me now. Maybe things have changed. Well, well Don't, you can't obviously say yourself. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't have somebody design me a house. Um, who you know as an architect i I realize now how difficult a question this is now that it's the table's turned and it's on me yeah um but obviously i'd want to design it myself it's my profession yes but i have to answer this question correct i found a way around it um (laughs) and my way around it is is again like i was saying before about designing putting myself outside of comfort zone and picking something so radically different to what i know and what i've experienced and have somebody design a house for me mm-hmm. but they're designing it so that i can build it and that's my way around it because then it's like i couldn't build this without this person's knowledge um and what i find so it'd be a self-build i yeah. build it hopefully the family could help out as well it'd be that kind of techniques building like traditional techniques and things mm-hmm. and the reason this question is so hard to answer is because because I'm doing this podcast and I speak to all these amazing architects about mm-hmm. how they're designed. My answer usually would be the last person I've interviewed because each one I'm like, oh my god, they're amazing! Wouldn't it be incredible? Da da da. And then then there's the next one that kind of influences. And um, but there's there's somebody that I saw recently, and the name the architect's called Porky Heifer, and they designed a house in Namibia, mm-hmm. and it's called the Nest House, and. Um, I haven't really sort of seen it receive much press or anything like that, but it's designed based on this nesting technique that a creature uses in Namibia in the trees. Yeah. And it's almost like thatched housing. And it's like this little sort of dwelling that could easily sit in a kind of Star Wars movie on, on one of the planets in Star Wars. Um, but it's all created out of this thatch and a technique I've, I would have no idea about how it works. And I'm not even sure if this person's an architect. I think they're more a, a, an artist. So Porky Heifer, that's that's who I'd pick. Uh, they would design this house and um, I'd have all the plans I'd need to build it. So whoever doesn't know Porky Heifer, have a Google, check out his work. Um, I'm sure it sounds it sounds lovely. I, don't, I haven't listened to that episode yet. 
so you inspired me to do so. I haven't, I haven't interviewed this person. I oh, I see. I'm, Got you. <laughs> I think I'm what... going to invite them now. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So uh, hope, uh, hopefully you feel okay with me having taken over this session, George, and uh, you happy with the result of having the tables turned on you for once. Uh, so, I loved it. I think you did a great job. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank yes, you. Yes, I was just going to ask. I hope you enjoy yourself. So um, thank you for letting me take over for this uh, open house special. And uh, to the listeners out there, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Two and a Half Story House and our practice Bradley van der Straten, then please visit the podcast website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com where you will find links to the work. And try out the podcast Instagram to see work of all my guests and sneak previews of upcoming guests. You can also find out more about Open House at open-city.org.uk. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or whichever platform you are listening on, as it's a great way to be notified about future episodes. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening. Thank you.